Good morning, guys. Uh, if you would uh, take your Bibles and open to Isaiah, uh, we'll be in chapter 58. Um, if you don't know where Isaiah is, if you open your Bibles halfway to the middle, uh, you should be in the book of Psalms, and then uh, Isaiah is four books after that, so you'll flip past Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon, uh, and then you will be there. And as you're turning, uh, I'll just go ahead and introduce myself for the new people in the room. Uh, my name is Riley Hambrick, and I serve as uh, the college intern here at Lakeview. Um, and I don't know if you would have met Kevin or not, uh, if you're new, um, but uh, our college pastor, uh, he is uh, currently in Africa leading a pastor's conference in one country, and then, um, well, he might actually be now visiting another family in another part of the country, um, or another part uh, of Africa now. Um, but I think he'll be back tomorrow or Tuesday or something like that. Um, so, uh, so hopefully you'll get to meet him Wednesday. Um, but hopefully you found your place in Isaiah 58 now. Uh, and I will start reading in uh, verse 1. It says, Cry aloud, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet and declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as if they were a righteous, uh, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such a fast that I choose a day for, the, a, day for a person to, be, uh, to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, and to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, and bring the homeless poor into your house? Or when you see the naked, to cover him, and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you, and the glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. And then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, Here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt you shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. Let's pray. Um, Father God, um, you have given us your word. Um, you've given us your word to know you and to make you known. Um, and to quote uh, Paul in his second letter to Timothy, um, we know that your word is profitable um, for teaching and for reproof and for correction. Uh, and for training your people in righteousness uh, so that we may be complete and equipped for every good work. And Father God, this is the very word that I pray would dwell in us richly this morning as we seek to study it. Uh, I ask for your grace uh, 
my teaching would be clear and honorable um, and sound. And I also ask that through the study of this chapter uh, that you would instill in us a greater love for yourself. Would you give us hearts uh, that are softened to you, ears that hear, and eyes that see. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Um, Awesome. Okay. So before we start to uh, dive into the text, uh, there's a few things that I want to preface. Uh, First is that the book of Isaiah falls under the category of prophetic literature. And with that said, uh, an important thing to note about Isaiah, as is consistent with um, almost all other biblical prophecy, uh, is its theocentric character. And meaning that God is the, uh, God is the central interest and, and the ultimate concern of the text. And as such, uh, you'll notice throughout, uh, throughout this book, but this chapter specifically for this morning, uh, there, isn't, um, there isn't much narration or any, for that matter, in, in 58. Uh, so the cool thing is, is that most of prophetic literature actually comes in the form of, of preaching. Uh, and so the prophets are given a word from the Lord, and then they speak that word. Uh, from the Lord. And so, in this chapter, we have a message from God, but due to the theocentric nature, it is also a message about God. Uh, and so, so, there's something revealed about him throughout this text. And in this chapter, uh, uh, he has revealed a glimpse of his covenant uh, with Israel uh, at the time, uh, namely the Mosaic and the Davidic covenants. Uh, he has revealed his will, his judgment, and his redemption, uh, which makes this a really, really cool passage. Um, but secondly, the thing that um, I want to hit on is, though, uh, is that though many prophets foresaw God's promises before they came to be, um, isn't it too helpful to think of prophets as uh, fortune tellers? Um, because primarily they are uh, addressing a people that are like, presently before them. Um, and, and, and they do this for the purpose of directing everyone's attentions to the sins that are immediately um, uh, around them and, and calling uh, that people for, for radical change. And so prophets uh, call people to repentance, uh, though they also prophesy things to come. Uh, they also expose, uh, they're, they're exposing present realities, and, and this is certainly true of our text this morning. And so therefore, as it relates to, um, to chapter 58, um, Isaiah, in the latter half, where he prophesies of what could be, uh, he isn't doing this to satisfy anyone's questions or concerns about the future um, but rather to move a, a, a people to repentance and to encouragement. Uh, and as you'll see, the way that, or hopefully the way that this chapter will work out um, is that it will serve to orient our minds back to our series on covenant theology, and then when Kevin is back next Sunday, to also orient our minds back to our series on Revelation. Um, and, and with that, we have a hope of, of restoration through Revelation, and then also a reminder of the Lord's faithfulness to always deliver on his promises uh, through covenant theology. And the last thing that I'll say is that because this was written uh, uh, with the purpose of addressing a specific people at a specific point in time, uh, it isn't too helpful to focus on the details. Um, so what we'll do instead is, is fo- uh, focus on the overarching themes of the text. Um, and I'll say this because if we were to apply what we uh, read here uh, to our lives literally, we could read verse 6, uh, where, uh, where the Lord says uh, to undo the straps of the yoke and to let the oppressed go free, and then think that we are excused from action because uh, slavery no longer exists in the United States, or something like that. Um, uh, when really the main point that the Lord is trying to communicate through Isaiah uh, is that we should make every effort to eliminate various 
uh, social misdeeds and mismanagement and, and instead establish an a, uh, enduring brotherly love. Um, and, and I'll say more on that in a minute. But, okay, with this understanding, um, hopefully we can start to look at this chapter in a proper lens. So, what's happening? Uh, well, without going into too much detail, uh, Isaiah's prophecies cover various developmental stages, um, primarily uh, 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 with Judah and Jerusalem. And so when chapter 1 begins, Judah has grown into this strong commercial hub uh, with, a, uh, with a really big military, but also the people of Judah were experiencing some, um, some really, um, um, they were experiencing just a lot of like spiritual decline. Uh, and essentially, as uh, all of this progressed, and as regional politics began to grow and change and morph, um, what ultimately ended up happening was war. Um, and um, again, without going too much into the details, the main point emerging throughout all of this was that war was a form, or began to be a form of God's judgment on Judah for their spiritual decline uh, and their willingness to compromise their faith. And so during all of this, Isaiah was prophesying and, uh, and condemning Judah's moral decay. He prophesied of the Lord's judgment, but he also prophesied of the Lord's redemption for them, uh, for the Lord's promise of salvation. Uh, and with this, we call this prophetic foreshadowing because we know that salvation would come, but just not in the way that they thought it would come, um, and, and certainly not how or when they thought that it would come. So salvation came in the form of a Savior, not uh, through the death of their enemies, as, as they were expecting and hoping. But anyway, uh, this is all important because people of Judah believe themselves to be a holy people, uh, a, a holy and righteous people, uh, and, and they were God's chosen people. They, uh, uh, they, they, were, they were supposed to be his favored, but when they would uh, make pleas for him to intervene, um, the Lord didn't answer, and, and they took notice of that. So as we'll see here in a second, uh, Judah, now an immoral and idolatrous people, uh, mistakenly thought that their status as God's favored people meant that there would be no repercussions for their sins. And, and so they began living a, a life of, of empty religiosity where they would still go through the motions and do things that, that religious people did, um, but, um, uh, but they, they did this only to merit a response from God without ever truly loving and revering the Lord. So what Isaiah does throughout this book and chapter uh, is essentially rebuke them, saying, like, your religion and, and your religious practices, like, these things will not save you. Like, there is no salvific power in your works. And what you need is a savior. You don't need a, a good king. You don't need the death of your enemies. You need a savior. Um, and so, um, as we'll see, their fasting uh, results only in more sin. Um, but what God means to say is that if they ever intend to see deliverance, with this contrast, true and false fasting, uh, if they ever intend to see deliverance, they must uphold their end of the covenant that, they, uh, that God made with them. Uh, and this is done by pursuing holiness. Um, and so, so their fast, uh, God rebukes and instead puts forth his fast. Um, and so the main focus of the text and what I want us to see uh, as we start to look at these verses is a distinction between a false worship or false fast of the Lord and a true worship or fast of the Lord. Um, and the question that I uh, want you all to be considering as we're walking through this is whether or not your heart truly delights in God. Is he your ultimate source of satisfaction? Uh, and so uh, we can, if you want a title for this sermon, it can be uh, Faith and Faithfulness. Um, and we'll look now at our first point, verses 1 through 5, on ruin. Um, so 
uh, immediately in verse 1, uh, the Lord says through Isaiah, uh, declare to my people their transgressions, to the house of Jacob their sins. And, and as I was just previously saying, this would have really gotten their attention because, again, like Judah is, is the tribe, uh, they, they are the tribe that, whose descent, they are descendants of, of King David and King Solomon. Uh, they are the offspring of David, of, of uh, Jacob, and, and really, like, they, they are supposed to be the remnant of, of faithfulness unto the Lord. Um, but instead, they have offended the Lord, uh, they have forsaken his commands, uh, and they've, they've just really gone astray. And um, in the midst of this war, uh, they did not truly believe that the Lord would deliver them, uh, and instead, they formed all these unholy alliances, and, and they turned inward. Um, they were no longer faithful to the Lord, but but they were doubtful, and, and, and they became more and more self-reliant. Um, and so, I uh, declared to my people their transgressions, house of Jacob their sins. But if you keep reading verse 2, it kind of gets confusing because what does it say? It says, they seek me daily, they delight to know my ways, they ask God for righteous judgments, they, they delight to draw near to God. Um, so, so, sin is being called out, uh, but they seem to be doing all the right things, right? Like, Verse 2 seems to be a, a really great model of what we ought to be doing, you know. Um, so, so what's up? Well, first off, uh, right in the middle of verse 2, um, it says, uh, my, my translation, the ESV translation says, they seek, and, uh, they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness. That as if kind of gives the air uh, that they might believe themselves to be holy and righteous, uh, but there's a disconnect somewhere. And so, uh, they forsake not the judgment of their God and ask God a righteous judgment. That just simply means that they were asking God for his justice, um, uh, for the destruction of their enemies and safety uh, away from them. Uh, not Where it says not forsaking, um, just simply means that they desired God to, to answer their prayers. They, they want God to draw near to them and, um, and, and give them the judgment that they ask for. But the problem with all of this uh, is seen in verses 3 through 5 says, uh, the people say, uh, we have fasted and you don't see it. We have humbled ourselves and you, and, and you don't acknowledge it. They want to know why. Um, and so they've gone through all the right motions and all the right rhythms and they've done all the proper things. So why is the Lord not responding to their pleas? Uh, well, this is a problem in and of itself uh, um, because um, their problem is that they think these quote-unquote righteous acts... Um, makes God obligated to respond uh, to their prayers. And not only to respond, but to give them the response that they want. Um, and so furthermore, what the Lord says to them is essentially like, that, like yeah, you're doing all these religious deeds, but, but you're doing it for your own selfish reasons. Look at, look at verse uh, um, 3. Uh, Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure. Um, and, and so I was trying to highlight um, um, all, like, what their, what their fast is resulting in. It says, In the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure, you oppress your workers, you quarrel and fight uh, and hit with a wicked fist. Um, their, fighting, their fighting is totally unjustified. Um, they're fighting amongst themselves, not with their enemies, but amongst themselves. And so, in other words, like, what, what the Lord is doing through Isaiah is essentially saying, like, you've gotten this all wrong. And so, the, the point is, is that when we bow our heads in reverence or when we desire to draw near to the Lord, um, we don't do this to get something from God. We do this to get God himself. And we do this to draw our hearts near to who God chiefly is. Namely, our Father and our Creator and our Sustainer and our Deliverer. And we do this uh, very simply to have our deepest cravings and our deepest desires 
um, ultimately satisfied by his presence, not by his presence, like not by his gifts. Um, I try to make that work. It sounds too similar. But, but ultimately, like seeking the Lord for himself, not for the things that he is offering us. Um, and so uh, Malachi 3.14 says, it is vanity to serve God, meaning it is vanity to serve God with the expectation of getting something in response. Uh, and, and, and this is the thing that applies to us today. Like our works warrant nothing from the Lord. They warrant no response from God, uh, not our prayers, not our worship, uh, not our fasts or acts of service. Like none of this is meant to uh, be done with the intended purpose of, of getting something from God. It's meant to set our hearts on His, right? Like it's meant to orient the true desires of our hearts back to the Lord. Um, and, and here's another thing. Uh, look at, look at uh, what followed their fasting and their humbling of themselves. It was oppressions and fights. And God was like, is this what you think my fasting looks like? Like, is this what you think my definition of righteousness is? is no, absolutely not. Um, and so the people of Judah and really Israel as a whole, um, they were under the threat of physical ruin. Um, but they were also on the verge of spiritual ruin if they were not there already. And, and I, wanna, I, I want you to keep this in mind because I'm going to come back to it uh, and, and hopefully tie it all together in the end. Uh, but now, as we transition to our second point, uh, the people here are thinking uh, that, that they're good because they're doing all these religious things, all these spiritual things, without ever once considering that their sinful behavior, their actions, um, might actually show that they are uh, very, very far from the Lord. Um, so our second point, uh, we'll look at renewal, the process of renewal in verses uh, 6 through 10. Um, <clears throat> so here, uh, the Lord contrasts uh, Israel's fasting uh, with his fasting. And if you'll notice, uh, the contrast is between acts of selfishness and acts of selflessness. And so uh, the way that uh, uh, when verse 6 uh, begins, uh, is not this the fast that I choose? And then uh, what uh, follows that is a list of, of all these other things. Um, what the Lord means to say is that the fast that I choose is actually for that sin to be dealt with. And so everything the Lord lists here is, is actually a list of what should be, what should follow, when, uh, or, what should, or what is produced when his people truly fast. So they're opposites. So verse 3 says, You oppress your workers. Verse 6 says, Let the oppressed go free. You seek your own pleasure. Share the bread with the hungry. You quarrel and fight. Undo the straps of wickedness. And so basically, like through these contrasts, the Lord is providing a way for, for uh, Judah's and, and really Israel's prayers to be heard. And, and ultimately, um, the point is not necessarily that by doing certain things that, that uh, the Lord will uh, answer or respond, but, but by simply obeying the will of the Lord, by being a holy people. Um, and so... He is demanding like a complete turnaround of their lives. Uh, why? Because the mark of, of God's people is not wickedness, but it is a complete and life-altering transformation. And so, so the, the point is, is that you are either a servant unto the Lord or you are a servant unto sin, but you cannot be both. Um, and so only through the ruthless elimination of sin in their lives will the Lord begin uh, to, to answer their cries for help. And so only, only then will they see renewal in their lives. Um, and, and we can infer that, that as they uh, begin to serve the Lord, things will begin to change for them because of how verse 8 begins. So it says, uh, verse 6, Is not this the fast that I choose, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, to break every yoke, 
Share bread with the hungry. Let the homeless pour into your house. Um, cover the naked. Um, uh, not to hide yourself from your own flesh. Verse 8, then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and then your holiness, uh, or, and then your healing will speed up, uh, will speed up, spring, uh, wow, will spring up speedily. And so uh, we can infer again that, that things will change for them as they begin um, to, to serve the Lord. Um, and so, so this, this chapter calls Judah to repentance, but uh, also serves to encourage them and, and, and strengthen their faith. And that's why this imagery is important. So in this verse alone, in verse 8 alone, um, we read that God will use uh, their good deeds to bring light into darkness, to bring he- uh, healing. Uh, we're told that their righteousness will go before them, uh, meaning that as they conform to the pattern of holiness, that, uh, that will then lead them into peace. Uh, we're told that the glory of the Lord will be their rear guard. Well, what does this mean? Uh, well, rear guard uh, in Hebrew means to gather or to uh, collect. And so the glory of the Lord means that he is following behind them. And typically in a war setting uh, like they're in, uh, those who are bringing up the rear are typically, uh, typically those who are too weak to keep the, uh, to keep the pace. Uh, they, they fall behind. And so um, their encouragement here is that when they are too weak to press on, the Lord is with them. And he's, and he's seeing that they are not taken captive by their pursuers. Um, when they undo sin's bonds, as, as they go forward, it's not going to be an easy journey. But the Lord is faithful to preserve his people, and he will keep, us ultimate, and he will keep them rather, from ultimately falling away. And so as they walk, he follows, seeing that no one is left behind. And that's a really encouraging thing. But uh, verse 9 also says, uh, he is there with an immediate reply. Not because, uh, uh, not because uh, he has to be, but because he loves them. They're, they're his people. Uh, he cares for them. And, 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 and once they begin to live lives characterized by holiness and righteous, righteousness, he will not delay to hearken call of, of his, the, or, or to hearken the cry of his suffering saints. And, so, and, that, and that same trend continues in verse 10. If we pour ourselves out for the hungry, he will satisfy the desires of the afflicted, and then shall your light rise in the darkness, and your gloom be as noonday. Um, and and to all of this, the the point that I want to recognize is that uh, for the Israelites, uh, God would only honor uh, the covenant that He made with them uh, if they lived holy and righteous lives. Uh, and that's because they were not yet living under the new covenant as we are, uh, where where we have the work of Christ and the promise. Uh, and so so for Israel, the promise of salvation was only guaranteed if they upheld their end of the deal. Um, and so if you're sitting here thinking that all this seems to be works-based, uh, you're right. Um, but that's not the case for those of us here today. Um, and, and, and so like the encouraging part is that um, um, we, we have a Savior. We are under the substitutionary atonement of Christ. And, and the, uh, the other encouraging part is that um, even though this technically doesn't apply to us, even though we're not saved by works, um, the encouraging thing is that because of God's immutability, meaning his unchanging nature, the character of God that we see here is still true of him today, uh, meaning that the Lord will still heal his people, and he will still not delay when we call. And he is still our rear guard when we are suffering and, 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 and fighting sin, no matter how many times we fall. And, and if we want spiritual renewal in our lives, then we go forward by undoing the bonds of sin in our lives. But now... To, to shift slightly, um, I mentioned earlier um, that this was written to a specific people, 
uh, with a specific point, uh, at a specific point in time. And so uh, there, there shouldn't necessarily be a, a, a literal applica uh, application of all that's said here, um, but there's still something to be taken away from, from all that we're reading, um, something uh, from the overarching theme. What is it? Um, point is, is that our actions, the things we do and say, it is ultimately from the overflow of the posture of our hearts. So it is, it is exactly what we've just gone through and, and what we've just studied uh, in our series on the fruit of the Spirit uh, last semester. Those who walk by the flesh will gratify the desires of the flesh. Those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with all of its uh, passions and desires and instead walk by the Spirit. It's that contrast. And, at, and as such, we produce the fruit of the Spirit. So the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, so they cannot exist simultaneously within the life of a born-again follower of Christ without great conviction. Um, and, and to that end, if I may recall a quote that I pulled uh, from when I um, uh, taught on goodness, Gerald Bray uh, says, he describes that, he says this, holiness describes what we are in the sight of God. Righteousness is how this works out in practice. Therefore, the goodness of something is measured, uh, the goodness of an act is measured by the degree to which it corresponds to the will of God. Of course, the will of God being our holiness uh, and, and, and our sanctification. And so the idea that is being pushed here is that uh, if we claim to be God's born-again, consecrated people, uh, we, uh, um, if, we, if we claim to be this, but then we go and we fight and we quarrel, and, and we cause division and strife, then something is clearly off. Because like causing, causing strife and division is, is not what the Lord expects of his people. And this is not what should be produced when we earnestly seek him. That, that, that is not the marks of a true fast or true worship. Um, and so, here's the thing. Um, here's how I uh, want to apply this. And um, uh, I'm, I'm going to prod and poke... Uh, and, but my prayer is that I, I do so graciously. Um, so, so please bear with me. But in 1911, um, Andrew Murray, in what he refers to as the lamentable state of the church, uh, wrote the following words. He says, <clears throat> What is it that hinders the church in this day from falling on its knees and beseeching God by his Holy Spirit to give revival? It is this. Men do not consider that the work they need to do is impossible with man. They consult and organize and labor oh so diligently, and yet the members decline by the thousands. They cannot see that the work of winning men to become members of Christ and his church is a work that God alone can do through men who have yielded themselves to the Holy Spirit. At first, uh, at, at first sight, this word that all things are possible with God also appears easy to accept. We are so sure there is nothing impossible with such a God, and yet, when we ask whether God's servants really believe it, and, and in the joyful confidence that he is going to do what he says, we wait, upon the, uh, we, we wait upon him and expect his working, but we soon find out that it is not so. God is so little of a reality to us. How few men take time with God and secure his holy presence to fill their hearts and strengthen them in their work. And here's where I'm going with this. God promised deliverance to Israel. He promised this rest from their enemies and an inheritance where they are safe and secure forever. 
Yet, the moment that times got tough for Israel, for Judah, um, they abandoned any thought of God's promise to them. And not only that, but they also began to worship false gods. Their hearts were hardened to the Lord, and they began to live lives characterized by wickedness and immorality. And what I believe and pray the Lord's word for us um, is this morning is that um, drifting in this in, in, drifting in the Christian life is deadly. Because what it does is signify that we have lost touch with the supremacy of Christ in all things. It shows that no longer do we acknowledge the weight of sin uh, or, or, for that matter, the consequences of death for the unrepentant. And, and as I was racking my head on, on how to connect the dots here um, and, and, and how to make what's going on in this chapter relevant uh, to the follower of Christ today, um, this is what I came to. Um, this chapter, uh, Isaiah 58, uh, is truly about the heart of man and the faithfulness of God. So this chapter is it's, it's a manual for Christians in the midst of chaos and calamity and division, and most importantly, for those in the midst of sin. And, it, and it's a wake-up call. And so if the church, Big C Church, uh, not just this one, but all, like, um, all believers, if the church is in a lamentable state, and I believe it is, and, and if this is due to us not truly trusting the Lord to do what he has promised, and, and thus resulting in us taking matters into our own hands, how does this, how, how does this apply to us practically? Um, how does this, this concern us? How is it relevant? Well, um, for me, um, in my opinion, and in Many of you could probably see this coming from a mile away. I would say that the most immediate example of the church not trusting in the promises of God and relying on ourselves is seen in the current political divide and the role that Christians have played in this. So how does this relate to our passage? Quite well, I think. As Christians, we know, we know that in this life we will suffer persecution. And historically speaking, this persecution has come through the hands of, of abusive governmental power. But we hope and have faith that God, who has entered into a new covenant with his people, a new covenant of grace with his people, through the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ, that his promise to redeem and restore creation will be fulfilled. But what do we do? We forget, and we lack faith, and we fear uh, we fear what might happen if the wrong person or the wrong group gets power. And what's resulted from this? And we will, we will drag our political opponents or our political counterparts through the dirt. And we will slander their names and we will judge them and we will condemn them. And heaven forbid if something like January 6th with an with a insurrection, like, Heaven forbid something like that happens again. Like, there were crosses on the Capitol line as people were chanting uh, death to our vice president. You know, like, they were wanting to kill the vice president of the United States. Um, or at least they send us if they wanted to. And, and, man, like, this breaks my heart. Because though we may not agree with our political counterparts, and, and though it may seem as if they, they are against everything that we believe, like, these people are image bearers. Like, they are made in the image of God, and, 
and, and regardless of who we want to blame for ruining our country, let us first remember that first and foremost, this is the result of sin, and our command is not to hate the sinner. It is to hate the sin. And this is certainly not the example that Christ set for us to follow. Like even, even as his enemies were crucifying him to the cross, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And yet, we revile nonetheless. And we go to church, and we pray, and we worship, and every now and then we'll fast, and we'll do all these religious things. But with this, like, are we entertaining the desires of the flesh, or are we walking in step with the Holy Spirit? Like, what fruit is being produced by our worship of the Lord? And who are we trusting in? I'll say this, politicians make terrible trophies and political parties are a poor form of salvation. Like, we love all and we serve all because Christ has died for all. And, and, and just as he promised to save, the heartbreaking thing, the gut-wrenching thing in all of this is that he also promised to judge. And, and we should be weeping over our willingness to, to besmirch the Imago Dei before we witness to them and pray for them. Like, like we should we should be on our on our faces, like before the Lord, repenting of this. It breaks my heart. It really does. Um, and 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 here's the thing too. Like, I realize that most of you don't give two rips about politics, um, and and you know a lot of you don't care, whatever. Um, and, and, and so how does this apply to you? Um, for you, the, it, the issue is not, not the political divide um, or, or frustration with the political scene. Um, so what about uh, frustration with our professors uh, who we swear up and down have uh, given, us, uh, given us an unfair grade uh, and, and we will get our, our, our feathers so ruffled um, and, and, and so anxious over a bad grade uh, that we forget Another promise. We forget that the Lord has promised to fulfill um, uh, his purpose for our lives, regardless of any speed bump or roadblock that we hit along the way. Or uh, we could be in the camp where uh, uh, you're just the purest individual, you know, but, but we fail to take sin seriously and think that uh, because we're not getting drunk or sleeping around, um, uh, that, that we're good. And that ultimately, breaking the speed limit isn't that big of a deal. Um, it is. Uh, here's an example. Um, I've, I've come to think, uh, I've come to believe uh, that most of my little sins uh, in my life uh, occur while I'm in the car. Um, and y'all, I don't know why, uh, but I just cannot go the speed limit. Um, I think, you know, I like, something's wrong with my car. You know, it's not my fault. Um, but, okay, or this, or like, man, y'all, like, I was, I was uh, standing around talking to people uh, Wednesday after um, uh, prayer night, um, and, and I just get ambushed, you know, like uh, uh, someone who I thought was my friend uh, walks up and introduces their friend to me, a person that I've never met before, and, and, and they do this by saying, hey, this is the guy that's hitting on pedestrians with his car. <laughs> Y'all, I was floored. I'm like, first off, it's eight people, <laughs> and secondly, one of them was the, was the buggy boy at Kroger, so not technically a pedestrian, you know, uh, and I was so embarrassed, I'm like, Man, this could have been one of my victims for all I know. You know, like, 
Full confession, I never really get a good look at them. All I see is like a ponytail or a backpack fly across my hood. Um, and so, but it's, it's just wild because this story keeps coming up, and I'm like, okay, let it die down. You know, secret's out, I guess, now. I just told all of y'all. Um, so don't talk about it anymore. But um, <laughs> there, there's a point to this. <laughs> all of this to be, uh, all this to, to say um, that... Uh, um, Little sins can, can come to a point to where they are ruling our lives, uh, like speeding, uh, or for me, uh, hitting pedestrians. Um, and, and I guess they can, um, <laughs> they can over time, um, really ruin our spiritual lives. Um, because what it is, is a slow and subtle fade. Nothing big changes in our lives, right? Like we're, we're still active in our church, and we're still doing all these good things, um, and still doing a whole lot of good, but we haven't fully reckoned ourselves with the full weight of all sin, not just the major ones, but all sins. And just as locusts can devastate the harvest, so too can our subtle sins wreck our lives, wreck our spiritual lives. Because what happens is that one by one, they collect and grow, and before we ever know it, one has turned into two, and two has turned into three, and then there's a swarm that has eaten away at all there is. Like our little sins harden our hearts and we drift. And so the things we do affect us whether we know it or not. And there's, an, there's a term that describes this if you want to go look it up later. Um, it, it, it's called the psychosomatic union or the idea that the material body and the immaterial soul are connected, meaning that the external affects the internal and vice versa. So like when I'm physically sick, I'll also get kind of down in the dumps and a little depressed. And so it is, too, with our sins. The more we do them and the more they go unrepented of, the more they harden our hearts to the Lord and, and, and the more our actions are reflected by that hardness of heart. And this is partly why the Lord is calling us to do good works. Like, like when we work and act as unto the Lord, it becomes worship. And this is consistent throughout all of Scripture, such as in Romans 12 or 2 Timothy 6 or James 2. Um, like our righteousness, our acts of righteousness is a way, not the way, but a way um, through which Christians are conformed to the image of Christ and to his likeness and to his, his holiness. Like we are setting aside our desires, the desires of the flesh, for the desires that honor Christ, for, for Christ's likeness. Uh, and this is also how our faith is made known amongst a spiritually blind world. Um, thus leading us to our third and final point, restoration. The Lord is faithful to bring renewal from ruin if we are faithful to trust him. And we do this, um, and, and, and as we do this, he who started a good work in you will bring it to completion. That is a promise. And we will one day be restored as we will see here. Um, and, and, and as we're looking verses 11 and 12, um, our restoration serves not only us, but also others. And so, uh, let's look at it. 11 and 12. Um, verse 11 picks up where verse 10 uh, left off, saying, uh, And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And so what we have here is a promise uh, to be led and a promise to be strengthened, uh, but we also have a promise to be nourished. Look on says, and you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. 
um, and, and even continuing, verse 12, your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. Um, and so this is where I'll start to close. Um, the poetic device that's employed here uh, in these verses, um, and really kind of throughout the whole chapter, but in these verses specifically, um, the poetic devi- device that's employed here as Isaiah is, is, um, is, is prophesying is, is called synthetic parallelism. Synthetic parallelism. And, and what this means is that uh, one idea is paired with another, and, and lines are split in such a way as to balance the preceding thought. And this is done so as to serve and, and build on and advance the thought, the, the overarching thought of the text, um, which is this. As we are filled with the Spirit, and as the Lord pours into us, so are we to pour ourselves out for others. We are not just like a watered garden, right? Like, we're not just like, like water that seeps into the ground and, and, and soaks up nutrients for ourselves, but rather we are like a spring also. And so, by fully surrendering our lives in obedience to the Lord, we become vessels of truth. We become ambassadors for Christ, another consistent theme throughout, the, uh, throughout Scripture. Uh, and, and, and so this is, this is the, like, the underlying theme of, of being made like a spring. We become a place where others come to be satisfied and a place of refuge, a place of refreshment, a place for others to come and be filled. So as Christians, like as followers of Christ, um, our chief purpose is, is to know him, is to know the Lord, and to make him known. Verse 12, and we will be like the restorer of the streets to dwell in. Not meaning that the, stor- that the streets are meant to be lived in, but meaning that the paths leading to our dwelling place, to our heavenly home, will be restored. We are arbiters of truth and of grace and of justice and of mercy. We're out of the overflow of our love for the Lord. Our worship manifests itself externally in such a way as to, as to communicate the glory of our Savior, of Christ. And, and, and this is done through the works of our hands, by the working of the Spirit within us. But there's a but. But this will not be done by the church, by a church who fails to remember the promises of God. This is not done by forgetting his word or his promises to us. Andrew Murray, um, once more, uh, gives us this exhortation. He says, We have within us a self that has its poison from Satan. Look at your own life. What are the works of hell? He says, They are chiefly these three things. Self-will, self-trust, and self-exaltation. God has a plan for his people, but before that plan will ever be realized, we must and we have to yield ourselves fully to the Holy Spirit. And we do this by faith and faithfulness. We do this by, by trusting in the Lord to accomplish all that he says that he will, by then being faithful to that promise and to his commands. So, um, I think we have uh, a few minutes. Um, I think we normally finish around 10:30. Um, so, um, yeah, I'll, I'll pray first, and then we can uh, talk around our tables.
Father God, um, we love you and we, and we praise you. Um, and, and, and my prayer for us this morning is that the, the heartbeat of everything that we do is to honor and glorifying you. Lord God, may we be faithful um, to remember your promises to us. Would you soften our hearts to you? May we serve you. May we love you. Um, and, and ultimately, I, I pray that everything we do is indicative of, of hearts that are set on fire for you. When we witness, when we, when we serve, when we worship, even, even our secret um, internal thoughts, I pray that all of it is done for the, for, for the glory of your name. Oh God, would you sanctify us? And may we ultimately rest in you. In your name we pray. Amen.